good to be with you once again uh, this morning. Uh, I think most of you know by now that uh, this uh, was my own uh, church home many years ago, back in uh, the early 80s, and I always feel like I'm uh, coming uh, back home when I'm here. I uh, appreciate all of you and uh, the part that you play in uh, building up uh, the body of Christ uh, here in uh, Little Rock. Our scripture reading this morning is found in the Old Testament in the book of Haggai, and I'm going to be reading all of chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Would you all please stand as we receive the word of God? This is what God says. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it, and be glorified, says the Lord." You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord and their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet. As the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. You may be seated. 
The year 520 BC, when the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, was a year of crisis for God's people. It wasn't the kind of crisis that was immediately apparent. No one was threatening to invade their country. There hadn't been any major natural disaster. Rather, it was a crisis of indifference. Indifference about what was most important to God. When the Jews had first returned to the Promised Land in 538 BC after being in exile for 70 years, they were in high spirits. They were enthusiastic about rebuilding Jerusalem and especially the temple that was the symbol of God's presence among them. In 535 BC, the foundation of the temple was laid with great rejoicing and praise to God for how he had brought them back to the promised land. But then, over the next 15 years, until 520 BC, God's people got busy building their houses, building their businesses, building their communities. There wasn't anything wrong with these things in and of themselves. It's just that gradually the people of God became indifferent to what was most important to God. Little thought was given to finishing the temple. And when the topic did come up, God's people procrastinated. There were just too many other things that needed to be done first. The time has not come yet, they said, for the Lord's house to be rebuilt. So God challenged their priorities. There wasn't anything wrong with what they were doing. It's just that they were doing things in the wrong order of importance. This was the crisis that was facing God's people in 520 BC. Would they continue to put themselves and their own interests first, or would they put God and his interests first? Now, I'm sure that if we had asked the people of God in 520 BC what their priorities were, they would have given us the right order, just as we would. God, family, work right? But knowing the right order and practicing the right order are two different things. The fact of the matter was that the temple of God remained unfinished while the people of God were living in paneled houses. In other words, finished houses. And we would have to say that Today, too, like in 520 B.C., the temple of God, the church of Jesus Christ, remains unfinished as we, the people of God, put ourselves and our own interests first. What was lacking in the time of Haggai and what is lacking in us today 
is a profound dissatisfaction with the way things are. We have, we have come to accept as normal a way of life that is indifferent to that which is most important to God. The time had come in 520 and the time has come now for the people of God to consider our ways. If change is going to happen, then our priorities have to change. And doing what is most important to God should be our first priority. Our text this morning gives us two reasons why we should have the right priorities. The first reason we should have the right priority is because failure to have the right priorities results in frustration. The people of God in 520 BC claimed that they were too busy to do what was most important to God. Isn't that amazing? We're talking 520 BC, folks. What did these people have to do? They didn't have 24-hour-a-day news channels to watch. There was no primetime TV, no Netflix. There were no movies to go to. Nobody belonged to the Rotarians, the Kiwanis, or the Lions. Kids weren't enrolled in softball and soccer and volleyball leagues. There was no taekwondo, no gymnastics. These people couldn't just pop over to Jericho because Casting Crowns was holding a concert over there. There was no weekend to remember in Branson to go to. There were no cruises on the Mediterranean. So what did these people do with their time? What kept them so busy? Well, whatever it was, they claimed that it was a hindrance to them from doing what was most important to God. And if this was true for them, then how much more is it true of us today? Because we do have all of these things to do. And most of us have tried to do them all at the same time. And we know what that results in. Again, it's not that these things were wrong in and of themselves. It's just that they had become a hindrance to these people from doing what was most important to God. You've heard it said, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Well, the corollary to that is that busy hands are the devil's recreation room. One of my favorite I Love Lucy episodes shows Ethel and, and Lucy working in a factory on an assembly line. I see some of you shaking your head. You've seen this before. Everything is going fine until suddenly something goes wrong with the assembly line and it starts moving faster and faster. And the rest of the show is hilarious as we watch Ethel and Lucy trying to keep up with it. And finally, of course, they can't and stuff is just flying all over the place. 
Don't you suppose the devil gets a kick out of watching God's people adding one activity to another until finally our lives, our families, and our society is flying apart? If you're too busy, you're too busy. And the ironic thing about this is that all of this busyness that the people of God were engaged in, in 520 B.C., wasn't helping them. It wasn't getting them ahead. It was a case of the hurrier I go, the behinder I get. Look what it says in verse uh, 6. It says, you have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into, pur into a purse with holes. In other words, they were totally frustrated. They were busy, but totally frustrated. Their busyness wasn't doing anything to get them ahead. Now there are two reasons for this, for this frustration. One is the paradox of materialism and hedonism. The paradox of materialism and hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. The paradox is that if materialism and hedonism are your top priorities, then enough will never be enough. You will always be frustrated. Let me give you an example, or a couple of examples. In the 1950s, the average home in the United States was between 900 and 1100 square feet with one bathroom. Today, the average house is 2,500 square feet with two and a half baths. I read uh, not too long ago in the paper, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, that the average house in West Little Rock was greater than 3,500 square feet. And when will it ever stop? When will big enough be big enough? When will having enough bathrooms be enough bathrooms? Because you know somebody's going to build a bigger house, and you know somebody's going to put in more bathrooms, and then you'll have to do the same thing. That's what it means to be keeping up with the Joneses. But when your priority is materialism, then enough will never be enough and you will always feel frustrated. Another example is when pleasure becomes your priority, enough will never be enough. How many of you remember that when Coke first came out, it was served in six ounce bottles, and then it went to a 10 ounce bottle? and then to a 12-ounce can, and then to a 16-ounce bottle, then to a 20-ounce bottle. 
Do you know that at Come and Go, the largest fountain drink is 128 ounces? The only good thing about that is that once you're done drinking it, you can use it as a porta potty. <laughs> but the point is the same. If hedonism or the pursuit of pleasure is your top priority, enough will never be enough, and you will always feel frustrated. You will never be satisfied, as that great philosopher Mick Jagger put it. You can't get no satisfaction. But there's another reason for this frustration as well. And that is that when our priorities are not right, then God himself is actively working against us. Look what it says in verses 9 and 10. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, and on on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Remember, this is the word of the sovereign God who created this world and who upholds it. He causes the sun to rise. He causes it to set. He brings us the rain. He withholds the rain. He brings forth the crops. He withholds the crops. He blesses or he withholds his blessing. When I was uh, in college at uh, UCA, it was SCA back then, I was an education major. My wife Susan and I had just transferred from a small Christian school, and uh, we were excited in being at such a big uh, college because the college that we had come from was only like 300 people. So we were excited about the college. We were excited about our future. We uh, registered uh, for our classes. And unfortunately for me, there was one required course that was only being offered at 8 o'clock in the morning. Now, for me, it is practically impossible to stay awake while somebody else is speaking. I had slept through high school, I had slept through the first two years of college. For some reason, I just could not stay awake when somebody got in front of me and started speaking. And that was especially true at 8 o'clock in the morning. Well, not only was that bad news, but it turns out that the class was being taught by the head of the department, Dr. Patterson. And she gave us assigned seating, and I was in the front row. And I did my best to stay awake, but you know my eyes would roll, and you know, my head would uh, nod off like that, and my body would jerk as I tried to keep myself awake. And this went on for a couple weeks. 
And finally, I got a notice that I was supposed to go see Dr. Patterson. Well, when I walked into the office, she had me sit down, and then she just looked at me. And she said, do you want to talk about it? And I thought, what is it? And finally, she let me know that she thought that I was on drugs. Uh, when she said that, I was immediately relieved because I thought, oh, no, 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 you don't. I was a missionary kid. You know, missionary kids don't do drugs. Uh, no, and so I explained to her the problem that I had staying awake. But it was one of these cases where the more I protested that I wasn't on drugs, the more convinced she was I was on drugs. And finally, she dismissed the meeting and she said, well, if you won't admit that you have a problem, then I can't help you. Oh, okay. Well, a week or so later, I was in the department's uh, headquarters, and I was signing up for the National Education Association. And while I'm doing this, Dr. Patterson walks in, and she says to the clerk, she says, what is he doing? And she said, well, he's signing up for the National Education Association. And she said, don't sign him up. We don't need his kind in education. And then she took off. And I knew right then and there that I wasn't going to go anywhere in education. So I switched my major to history. <laughs> but as formidable as Dr. Patterson was, she was nothing compared to Almighty God. I wasn't going anywhere in that education department as long as Dr. Patterson was actively against me. And we aren't going anywhere as long as God is actively against us when our priorities are not in order. So the first reason we should have the right priorities is because failure to have the right priorities results in frustration. The second reason we should have the right priorities is because having the right priorities results in success. When the people of God in 520 BC heard the message of the Lord, they responded in a positive way. They decided to rearrange their priorities and to make what was most important to God first in their lives as well. And the word of the Lord came to them again, this time not as a rebuke as it had the first time, but as a promise. He says in verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. And that's a very significant phrase because in scripture, whenever the Lord promises to be with his people, it is a promise of success. Remember just before Joshua went into the promised land, he asked God to go with him and God promised that he would be with him. That was the promise of success. When Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, 
He says, and lo, I am with you to the end. It is a guarantee of success. But we need to be clear here about what success means, biblically. In scripture, success is not defined as us getting what we want, but as accomplishing what God wants done. It's not getting what we want, it's accomplishing what God wants done. I've known people over the years who have told me that God was their first priority. I remember not too long ago actually talking to a man who no longer goes to church about why he didn't go to church anymore. And he said, for years, he said, God and me were just like this. He said, I had wonderful quiet times. I was involved in the church. And then, he said, within one year, both my brother and my father died of cancer. And I didn't want to have anything to do with God anymore. You see, this this man was fooling himself. He was telling himself that God was first in his life, but that was only true as long as he was getting what he wanted. That's not what success in Scripture is all about. It's not getting what we want. It's accomplishing what God wants done. Take the example of Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays that the cup would be taken from him. That he would not have to go to the cross. In his humanity, Jesus didn't want to suffer that. But he also prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And God sent an angel from heaven to help him. And Jesus was successful in accomplishing what God wanted done. He didn't get what he wanted, but he accomplished what God wanted done, the salvation of his people. And so on the cross, Jesus could cry out, it is finished. The same thing was true for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul didn't get what he wanted in life. My goodness, read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The apostle Paul was flogged. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned several times. He didn't get what he wanted in life. But at the end of his life, he could say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Why? Because he accomplished what God wanted done. The evangelization of the Gentile world. Neither Jesus nor Paul got what they wanted, but they were successful in accomplishing what God wanted done. Because they had the right priorities. So the second reason 
that we should have the right priorities is because having the right priorities results in success properly understood. The year 2018 is a year of crisis. Not the kind of crisis that is immediately apparent. Like 520 BC, it is a crisis of indifference. Indifference about what is most important to God. Finishing the work that Jesus began. Building the church of Jesus Christ. Now I know that the church is not a perfect place. We live in a time where a lot of people are bailing out of the church. And I'm talking Christians. You've heard of the phenomenon of the unchurched Christian. By the way, the latest statistics that I've seen is that three out of every five unchurched Americans claims to be a Christian. Unchurched Christians, it's an oxymoron. Christians are the church. But they are people who have been disappointed by the church in one way or another. And this number just keeps increasing. When I was pastoring a church in uh, Nebraska, we had a conference speaker who came one weekend, and he stayed with us. Over a meal one day, he mentioned that he had pastored a church at one time, and I said, well, don't you miss that? I said, it must be hard just being on the road and doing conference after conference with people that you don't know. I said, don't you miss the pastorate? And he just, in a disgusted voice, said, Steve, he said, a man can waste his life in the church. I don't know what was behind that statement, but in some way or another, the church had disappointed him. I, under, I understand that. The church is not a perfect place. If it was, neither you nor I would be here. But the church is important to God. About a month ago, I was having lunch with a lady who had been sick for three weeks. And over the meal, she said, Steve, she said, you wouldn't believe the good preachers there are on TV. She said, if I, if I hadn't been sick, I, I, I would never have found out. But she said, I can stay home and watch preachers on television, and it's better than what I get in church. She was totally missing the point about what the church was about. For her, church was going to hear a sermon. But the church is so much more than that. The Bible talks about the church as, as a building, and it talks about it as a body, with every part functioning in such a way as to benefit the whole to the glory of God. Believe it or not, God loves the church just like he does each one of us. And we know that we're not perfect, don't we? The church is precious to God. 
And he wants us to value it as much as he does. In the philosophy of ministry uh, that I wrote up uh, for the churches that I planted, this is one of the things that it says about the church. It is inconsistent to say that we love the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, and not love his church. The church is the bride of Christ. In spite of its many imperfections, we should not love it any less than he does. He laid down his life for the church, and he is presently working to perfect it, that he may present it to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Loving members understand that we too are called to lay down our lives for one another, that we have a responsibility to use the gifts God has given us to build one another up, that we are to bear with one another and bear one another's burdens. The church is special to God. It's important to him. And doing what is important to God should be our first priority. I'm not an efficiency expert, so I'm not here this morning to tell you how to arrange your life, what activities you should engage in, which ones you shouldn't. I'm sure it's different for every person. All I want you to think about this morning is this word from the Lord, to consider your ways and to overcome the busyness in your life so that it does not become a hindrance to doing what is most important to God. Let's bow our heads in order of prayer. Heavenly Father, it's so easy to see the faults in others, to see the fault in an organization, to uh, not take the log out of our own eyes while we try to remove the specks from others. Father, thank you that in spite of our own imperfections, you continue to love us. And thank you from, for this word, from scripture, for this word from you, that just as you love each of us individually, you love your body corporately. That just as you see us clothed in Jesus Christ individually, you see the bride of Christ dressed in the garments of Christ as well. And that Jesus Christ is precious to you. Father, help us to value what you have valued. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.